0: Hi there, Glocal citizens. Welcome back to the podcast that inspires a borderless mindset around manifesting a new world. I am your host, Florence Aduke, coming to you from a sunny afternoon in Accra, Ghana. And my guest is coming to us from a sunny afternoon in a neighboring country, which he'll tell you about. So let's get right into it. He is a writer and co-founder of Narrative Landscape Press Limited, a firm that believes that owning the means of production is essential to a vibrant publishing industry. They're committed to more than simply printing physical books. They also bring editorial and book design expertise to the fore while developing a cadre of excellent writers. His second novel, Fine Boys, a coming of age novel, received wide acclaim in 2012 and was published in America by the Ohio University University Press's Modern African Writer Series in 2021. When he's not writing or publishing, he teaches creative writing at the annual Chimamanda Adichie Creative Writing Workshop. Prior to launching into his literary career, he graduated with a medical degree from the University of Benin. Dr. Egosa Emasuen, welcome to the podcast.
1: I told you you'd pronounce it well. Clap for our audience.
0: Clap! Yes. Yay!
1: It's <laughs> lovely to, to be here. Um, Lagos is in yes. Lagosian, so we're all hiding from traffic until closing time. So this is just perfect. In about an hour, I go home. Wonderful,
0: wonderful, wonderful. So, so let's get started. Where are you from? Where are you local? And what is your craft?
1: I'm a former medical doctor from Benin City. The city, not the country. The city, the country is named after. I grew up in Wari, which is a nearby um, coastal town, which used to be um, called the Oil City, Uh, although the refinery is no longer working. I moved to Lagos in 2013, where I now live and work. And what is your craft? Um, I'm a publisher, I'm a writer, Mm -hmm. Um, short stories, and novels, although I haven't done either of the last two in a long time, because publishing is this. Soul destroying work, reading submissions—it takes so much out of you. But, <laughs> yes, but it's, I can imagine. Yeah, I can
0: imagine. It, uh,
1: but yeah, but but that's what I do. I'm, I'm not one of those who was always a writer. Uh, who was always a reader. Who always did. Was going to be a writer. I was aware that I was brilliant because I think my parents always used that to, to tease me. I was a big coconut head who always read pieces of paper and everything, but I never <laughs> really wrote until. 2005. You, you, you know what I mean by by, by that child now, who, when his him and his are in the market, he will pick up a piece of torn paper from the ground and start reading it. And and who is four or five or six, and everybody's worried and scared, or who walks into the meetings of mommy and her auntie friends and starts talking about uh, 1984 Olympics and how satellite television works. And my mom and her friends were staring at me, I'm like, "What the hell do they have here?" But yeah, but I I think I I I found out that writing was a thing in 2005. I was already five years a doctor and I just I just jumped into it. And five years later, I was no longer practicing. But of course, then I had to find a gig because writing does work and I found myself publishing. Mm,
0: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So so what kind of medicine
1: did you practice? Didn't go that far. General practice. Yeah. Okay. General practice. Finished medical school in 1999 into the new millennium. Uh-huh. First exam I ever filled in my life was the Primaries to become a surgical resident. Oh wow! I was shocked at the exam. I was I was so upset by it. I was like, "What the hell is this?" What? So I found out that professional exams were not a test of knowledge. They were more of a gauntlet, you know, because there were yeah, so many people. Yeah, 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 yeah. There, there mm-hmm. were so many people trying to get mm-hmm. into into the residency programs when we finished medical school at that time because it had become more attractive because the government was pushing a lot of money into it. Unlike the eighties when most people went into private practice. That the exams were no longer testing knowledge; it was about um, not an excuse, but I just kind of rebelled against it. I just said, no, 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 this is this is ridiculous. And of course, most people re- rebelled by moving abroad. That's why Nigeria kept on hemorrhaging doctors. Then several mm. of us just when once I found a second love in writing, and I found that it was something that I was really good at. Mm. Medicine mm-hmm. just stopped. Yeah.
0: Mm. Okay, interesting. So. You were this brilliant child that your parents mm-hmm. could barely <laughs> barely stop you from picking up papers to read all the time. Mm-hmm. So, first of all, how did you find medicine as the place where you landed first? And then how did you transition out of that kind of scientific self into the writing? Because, you know, when you think about most African parents, they want a doctor. That's part of yeah. probably why you maybe even did it. But then when you decided to be a creative How did that move? So doctor to creative.
1: So um, I'm first son, first child. Okay. And Mm -hmm. my dad was an engineer who had a reputation for being really, really good in school. He got um, what they call it 112 in fee, maths, additional mathematics and physics when he did his Mm A-level. So it was kind of brilliant. My mom was supposed to study medicine, but got into pharmacology. And eventually, she got tired of pharmacology and studied law, and she retired as a chief magistrate about a decade ago. So it was that kind of house. Mm-hmm. Um, my mm-hmm, siblings, mm-hmm, my, my mm-hmm. three siblings, my immediate younger one studied mechanical engineering, that's Nosa, the boy. Then my sister studied math and became, an, she's an oil trader in the UK. Then the last born, studied medicine. So it was that kind of house. So for me, I, I always was a science stu- student. I didn't mm-hmm. have the liberty of thinking I could do arts. I was always into volumes. Now, I hated math, to be fair. I passed it, but I, and I understood it, but I didn't in, in, enjoy it. And I read volumes. So, biological sciences are just stories. Biology is stories. Mm. You tell a good enough story, and you see a pattern, and you explain it. And it was a beauty. I love biology. I, I got a distinction in secondary school biology, and medicine was just natural. But even then, my mm-hmm. my mom was saying, oh, you could you could study law, you could study anything you want to. Because I, I did literature in school, unlike most people who were in science class. My dad insisted that all his kids do literature. He hated geography, mm-hmm. uh, felt that geography was something you could study anytime in in life. He didn't know why it was taught in school. And But he said literature, mm-hmm. if you missed literature in school, you missed an entire world, you know? It will. So all of mm-hmm. us, even my brother that was in engineering class, I had to study literature and each of the four of us broke the timetable in each of our schools because there was it, there was no allowance for it, but we just, so I would have to take, miss a technical drawing class and engineering drawing class every week because I had to take a literature class and all that. It happened to my sister, it happened to my brother, it happened to our last. And so I just met met, met and I love practice. To be honest, now, most people tell you, no, no, I actually really liked it. I, I love practice. What is mm. medicine? It's you not know, listening to stories and coming up with an explanation for them. And of mm. course, you know, you know, medicine is actually apprenticeship-based. What you study in school mm-hmm. is just to prepare you from, prevent you from killing people. But to actually heal people is what you learn on the shoulder of another older doctor. That's what the practice is right. like in practice yeah. in real life. Uh, apart from the research, yeah. people who go and work in an office. But dealing with people, you are apprenticed to somebody older, so I love the practice of meds. Did it become less satisfying because of the issues in Nigeria at that time? Yes, it did. How did I jump into writing again? My mom. Mm-hmm. So I was five years post-graduation. I had attempted primaries in surgery once. I had stopped even attempting anything. So she came to see me once in my flat where I was living in Worry. And she, we got into these conversations like we always do. Because I'm the one who is her first child and I look exactly like her. And so she takes, so I'm a a second lover. So she was like, she takes special interest in my matter. So she was like, ah, you have become a chloroquine and panadol doctor. You are not moving on. You're supposed to be doing more with your life. I'm like, Mm mommy's 25 years old. Oh no, pushing 30. I've never dragged you to a police station to go and bail me for a crime or anything. I've always been a good child. I did all my duty. I passed my exams. Please let me rest. You know, I, I got into invest <laughs> at 16. I graduated at 24. Even though there were two years' strike, I should have graduated at 22 as a doctor and all that. So I was kind of a bit um, irresponsibly witty in my answer. So I think finally, finally, she now pulled up a magazine and she was looking at this. And it was John Viev. Uh, and there was this girl on the cover who had braids and two beads in each weave and in each braid. And she was saying, Look at this girl. That they are praising on Genevieve ma- magazine. She has written a book on horticulture, on flowers. And I looked at it; it was a book titled uh, "Purple Hibiscus." And she was like, "Why can't you be like her?" So I said, oh, "I said." Then she said, "Why can't you teach lesson or talk to?" I said, "When you talk to your friends, you're always holding court." I said, mommy, lesson for children—that's okay. Why? Okay. Why? Why don't you write?" She just said it in person. Why don't you write? And I said, "Hmm." Okay, cool. There's certain stories I always wanted to tell. So I went to my dad. Um, he had um, this bank of computers for his business. And the family owned a mortgage bank at, at the time. So I went there and I just took one. Forgot to take a UPS, uh, which is an on the uninterrupted power supply, which is like a small battery that prevents you from when uh, when the electricity goes out. So the electric company became my editor because every <laughs> time they struck, I lost about five minutes of writing because of, I had to reduce my auto saving from ten yeah. years to Microsoft. I reduced it to five minutes,
0: yeah.
1: and, I, and and I started writing a story about uh, my first novel, which is which is this bad science fiction novel, like alternate history about speculative fiction about a Nigeria in which. One of our presidents who was assassinated in 76 survived the assassination attempt, and it's 2003 in this night, in this alternate night, Nigeria. And I wanted to um, examine certain crimes he was accused of committing during our civil war. You know, there was some genocidal, there was something that happened in, in Asaba in early 67, in the first early months of the war. And this gentleman, Marutala Mohammed, who would basically die a hero at the age of 38, six years later, was. Um, was, was implicated. And I was dealing with the themes of, uh, you know, you either die young as a hero or live long enough to see yourself become the villain. And also, I wanted to tell a police procedural, but I couldn't create a world in which the Nigerian police actually investigated crimes using, you know, the um, tactics of, that you watch in film. films. So I had to create this new Nigeria where everything went right and there were trams in the cities and there was the subways in Lagos and all that jazz. So while I was writing, I eventually traveled to Lagos in 2005, and I bought a copy of Popular Discus*. It wasn't about flowers. <laughs>
0: and, no, it's not.
1: <laughs> and, and I and I read it, and I was when I tell people that Popular Discus* made me a writer, they don't mm-hmm. they don't understand it. It wasn't for me. It was first of all, it was the simplicity of it, which is extremely difficult to do, and it was also. I'd spent, I'd studied literature in secondary school. So in my understanding, contemporary African literature was Chinua Achibe, Shoinka, and those guys. There was a silent generation after them whose books had not yet become canon. So I read Chinua Achibe, and I I found out that these stories were 30 years removed for me at the very least, or 100 years removed. There were stories of immediate post-colonial period, you know, after colonialism came in the 1890s, and there were also immediate post-independence period of 1960s, and I, and I couldn't. That is the books in school. Like I couldn't. I understood their importance. I knew why they were important, but they were not me. You know, you found yourself or your younger adult, right? Like reading American pop, reading John Grisham, and everything, feeling closer to those stories than your stories. But with pop like this, because I knew Cambly, I knew the dad, I knew that mom, I knew them. I lived next to those people. I knew those stories. I knew the damage. I knew the pain of disappointment of parents who were brought up, who were boomers, basically, and who had given birth to us, and who were seeing the disaster that post independence actually was. I, I knew that story. So I went home, read it all through the drive, um, back to, started it at night, didn't sleep that night, continued it and finished it around 4 p.m., just as I was entering Worry from Lagos on the bus, got to my computer, deleted my entire first draft, and started again. Um, in the coming years, I will become friends with Chimamanda, and I would eventually publish her, and I would end up teaching at her workshop. I attended it first, and she always said, said that I was the ITK, that's I, I too no child, in her workshop. I'm a year older, this silly woman, but she was always, <laughs> I, was, I was the one who was always, always had his hands up and always had an answer to every question was. This <laughs> became, So, we, So we, we became friends, and we found out that our stories were basically the same. Yeah. Only that she was bold enough and lucky enough, and had parents who were maybe she wasn't first born, so there was there was no nothing on her shoulder, and she was able to leave medicine first for pharmacy for a few months, then eventually to go to the US around the time when the anti when the pro democracy riots were happening and all the universities were closed down 96 97. She was able to leave. We stayed back, lost a year, lost two years in school and graduated. But the journeys always eventually took you back to a place where. If Nigeria had not really pushed hard for STEM education in the 70s by trying to push anybody who showed a modicum of brilliance, of ability was pushed into science. That was that was how we all ended up there. You know, anybody who showed just the just the modicum of ability, no matter what their strengths actually were, you were pushed in, in, in into science. So for me, it wasn't as though I would not have loved medicine. I really loved it. I really li- liked it. It was easy, it was steady, it was steady work, it was a steady salary, and you were loved by patients, and you basically just performed for patients, which is what it was. You spoke to people, it was social, even though you studied science, and it was deep, deep science, but you became a kind of, um, what's that what I'm looking for, an interface between the book and the person, mm-hmm. you know, and the reality, mm-hmm. uh, but um, r- writing was just so much easier if I may mm-hmm. expose all writers who claim it is hard, it's not that hard. <laughs> so it, was, it, was so much, it was just so much easier. And um yeah, so 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 that's how it happened. So I remember when my when I took my first novel to my dad when I was still practicing and I showed it to him, and it was like this mean dude. He was like, ah I always knew you were going to write. Thank you, my son, thank you.
0: And it was oh. the second time he
1: had said thank you. The first time he said thank you with that tone of voice was when he came for my um swearing in. It was definitely my mom couldn't come, but it was definitely swearing in and when I took up and I was one as a doctor and I came there, you know, it's was be this big occasion. I came there. One I, when I walked past him, he held me and I said, thank you, sonny, thank you. And that was so cool, you know. So that was the yeah. second time I did it. Once when I became a doctor, two, second when I became a, a writer, the two times my dad thanked yeah. me for not disgracing him. <laughs> ah. <laughs> yeah. so it just and, happened. And, yeah.
0: and for your brilliance, obviously.
1: Yeah, 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 Amen. Yeah.
0: yeah. Wow, okay. That's a, that's a very interesting... So what was the title of your first
1: novel? Mm, that one that we don't talk about. Okay, ah! it, was, it was it was titled um, to Saint Patrick. Okay. you know that you know Saint Patrick is the patron saint of Nigeria. Okay, and uh, oh. one of the yeah one of the massacres in Asaba in October seventh of nineteen sixty seven occurred at Saint Patrick's College. Mm-hmm. So it was just like a just a way to hint at that that um, and one of those things where I only knew about it because of my mother's own history with the war. My my mother's mm-hmm. dad was from the Midwest. Was the Shekri but he had. He was a policeman, but he had most of his prof- at a large chunk of his professional life. He was a provincial police officer for an eastern district, which was in the east, the the, the province that eventually the region that um, tried to leave the federation at that time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And when um, an army from the east invaded the Midwest and declared the Republic of Benin, that's of uh, of, of of the Midwest. Uh, my granddad stayed at his post and was named commissioner of police. So. Eventually, when the Nigerian army pushed back the rebels, my granddad was on a hit list as one of the as a, as a, as an Igbo sympathizer, as a behalf, as a traitor to Nigeria. Of course, he survived that by running to Lagos and presenting himself, where he was thrown in jail. So my mom then was in the East. Um, she had been expelled when in retaliation, when Nigeria told when the Easterners ran back to the East after the massacres in the north in 66, in the years, in the months preceding the war the Eastern military governor had said that if we cannot, if Nigeria cannot guarantee the safety of Easterners in other regions, then the East cannot guarantee the safety of Nigerians. So he had basically expelled non-Easterners. And even though my mom, while being a Midwesterner, she had an Eastern scholarship because she was actually the, the child notebook at that time. So, so she eventually, but what she remembers was when she was put in a new Catholic school in Benin City, one of her friends was called out in October and by the time the friend came the friend was shouting and screaming, and they were holding her and she was broken. And what, what had happened was that her father and two of her brothers had been killed
0: mm-hmm.
1: the day before, two days before in, in Asaba, in the Asaba massacre. So it was a story that I knew about. But I was saying, well, it was this gentleman that did. My mom said, Yeah, it was the one. But his his face is on the 20-naira note. My mom said, Yes, his face is on the 20 naira note. And when he was assassinated and you were seven months pregnant, you marched. You marched. You marched in protest against the coup plotters who killed me some six. Yes, and my mom. Yeah, he was a hero, but he also tried to kill your dad. He said, "Yeah, yeah, the world is complicated." <laughs> you know, so it yeah, is so, that. So, yeah. Wise so, words. so I, I always, yeah, exactly. So, so, so it was that kind of. Um, it, it, it was that kind of. That's that's our history merged into sure. a family. So I always knew, even though most people don't. Yeah, exactly. Most people don't know about our So that was what the first novel was about. It it was it was ambitious. For the amount of skill I had at the time, sure. I I, I wish I could do it again. And my my partner and is always teasing me that shut up and do it again. And I, and, yeah. and, and I think yeah, I I, I I think I'm, now that my hand is a bit stronger, I think I might um, I, I might do it again. Yeah.
0: Yeah. You know, I um I'm you I'm sure you know all Nigerian authors, but sci- I think African science fiction has so much of a role mm-hmm. in transforming Africa. I mean, I'm a voracious reader, so I read so much, and I read a lot of Nigerian authors, but particularly those that imagine in Africa. That's very different. So, yeah. what you, you just imagine about trains and all those things, like you know, people can see it, and technology will 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 ask people to be to for avatars. But the words that are around, the emotions that are what 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 you're trying to create. I think it's it's time and it's necessary. So, speaking mm-hmm. of who are some of the authors? that you would say are authors to watch? And, or probably more more appropriately, how do you go about choosing
1: authors to publish? For us, it's about, um, it's difficult to explain, but there's this, it's not so much as craft mm-hmm. as it is, originality is such a bad word, but I, I, I think that's the closest to it. And truth, there's a mm. softness that comes from truth mm-hmm. where, for me, it's empathy. I, I, yeah, that's it. See, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm trying to find mm-hmm. the answer while yeah. I should have prepared sure. before sure, coming sure. here. But it's about empathy. <laughs> There's a way a story is told where you know that this writer feels what the people he's writing for. Mm. One, and one of the tragedies is that empathy seems to lean left in its political values because mm-hmm. people tend to understand others' point of view instead of protecting mm-hmm. themselves from thoughts, which tends to be a right-wing thing. And mm-hmm. one of those tragedies where we're not accused of being liberal. No, it's just empathy. And yeah. and there's a, there's a way a story is told where the author feels each person's pain, even <laughs> that of the villains. And for me, that is normally where I see the best writing. And one other thing I do when it, when it comes to is not this is just pure craft, is also the ability to do the simple things. So somebody who sends you the first 3,000 words, sends you a query letter. That is three paragraphs. The first paragraph explaining why they are contacting. The second paragraph about the book. The third paragraph, why why they are the best person. The manuscript sample is double-spaced, left justified only, Korean new, monospace fonts. And the person just does everything well. (laughs) Most times, their writing is good. Okay. Now the madman who now comes and says, Ah, well, it doesn't matter. It's the work that matters and breaks the rules. And you're like, and you yourself are like, Yeah, you've been em- empathetic. And I say, Yeah, it's true. What, what, what? these rules don't mean anything anyway. Let me go see this person's writing. You would have wasted an hour or two hours of your time going. Most times it is bad. Or the person who says that this is my book is going to be the best book and it will win an award. No, most times it is bad. Or the person who, who should have a red flag, there was one, the person sent us, not the manuscript in Microsoft Word, but sent us scanned pages of their manuscript, each page stamped by the Nigerian Copyright Commission. Okay. Yes, yes. You heard it well, exactly what you heard. Each page stamped, by the, because he didn't want his story to be stolen. Okay. You get, and, and most times it shows a very, very poor apprehension of your own writing. Sure. And yeah, and also to say with this my story to understand that stories are never really stolen. Every story has been right. told. Right,
0: exactly.
1: And, and why would a publisher risk their entire reputation on that?
0: Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So, 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 so yeah. now those are red flags.
1: Not the real, yeah. not the real question, but I just had to put that out there. But sure. in terms of in terms of people that we are looking that you should look out for, there's this gentleman called David mm, Aymar, okay. who writes in Nigerian English, Aymar mm. H Y M A R. David Aima, is um is deaf. Oh he's, he's, he's hearing disabled, which is the proper way. God, hope, okay, thank God, he can't even hear this, so I'm happy. So <laughs> he <laughs> would kill me for that, because he has a lovely sense of humor. And he writes, yeah. he writes, he writes unashamedly in Nigerian English, which is he writes the way I'm speaking. And 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 you know the way the way Nigerians speak, are like, and people like Ghanaians say, Oh, but I love your pigeon. Yes, that's the way he writes. And he has this memoir. Okay, so 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 let me let me ask you. So he's hearing mm-hmm. impaired. So yeah. how
0: how does he get the meter of speech? Was he once? No, he could
1: hear before. Yeah. Ah, okay, okay, okay. okay, he, was, okay. he slowly lost it. I see. Okay, got he it. Slowly lost it, and so he reads lips now. Okay, got He it. Reads lips now, but like I told him, but you got a hearing aid. He said no, it was hell.
0: Yeah,
1: I've heard that. Yeah, because it was just noise because it, because this was This was nerve damage. Not so yeah. much as uh, con- yeah. conduction damage. It was just noise. Sure. So maybe like a cochlear implant. Eventually, when he has money, that might yeah. help him. So, yeah. so it's uh, when, when when we came to sign the deal. So it's always look. If if uh, David is talking to you, is Ima is talking to, you, and he's a bodybuilder and is this fit and tattered up to the gills, and he's a star in the making. Yeah. Okay. And, it's, and and he's also too aware that he's handsome, which is a problem. <laughs> too aware of that. But his writing is so irreverent and. Uh, so, 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 so there's I imagine, of course, how, how, how can I call Oyiko oh, Break with a, a, a foundling? She's always, she's already big. Our first novel, My Sister, the Serial Killer, was this
0: oh, yeah, yeah, playful, yeah, yeah.
1: silly book that is so well done. And you're like, and, and you're reading it, and, and you're repeating to yourself, it's an easy read, it's a very hard write. An easy read is a very, because there's no other way to justify how easy it seems, mm-hmm. you know. So 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 there, there are lots of people creating now who are very excited by this. This um, gentleman of Indian descent who lived in Kenya for many years is moved to the states now. He was in FinTech, although he's mm-hmm. a lawyer. As we all mm-hmm. are, you have to have, you have to wear many caps. And we published his first novel, Truth is a flightless bird, which is a crime mm-hmm. thriller set in Nairobi. Yes, the, the title is so cool, yeah? Mm-hmm, yes, mm-hmm. Uh, Truth, Truth is a flightless bird. Basically, a play on the idea that um a liar's gone around the world twice, while the truth is still putting on his trousers. So, exactly. so it's this, yes. So, is this crime story set in Nairobi around the time of uh, Obama's visit? And it's. I remember when we got the manuscripts, I was like, "Oh God, this a Kenyan." And I saw him. I saw he was Indian, and I was worried about how it would seem if he missed, you know, characterization and the and the gaze. You know, one of the problems we have here. So I had to send it to one of my very African friends who lives in the States, everybody has, to, <laughs> everybody has that friend now who is very aware of the politics. And we also, write. So I sent it to a friend of mine, Ke- Kelechi, who eventually founded the publishing house and is publishing the American edition. Oh, nice. So, so he read it and it was like, okay, no, um, Agba cannot notice this about black people. This is staring, this is, so he basically um, annotated the manuscript. <laughs> okay, okay. And, and made it politics proof, you know, which was really cool. So, so, yeah, so there, there are so many silly things, but yeah, there, there's a lot of good writing going on. Yeah. Um, there's yeah, also a lot of um, so you have most of the people being published by Masobe, Masobe Books M-A-S-O-B-E. Um, it's a it's a mm-hmm. rival of ours. I I I always mm-hmm. tease its founder that I hate him because he's really <laughs> so I'm like, God, wow, to okay. Where did you think of God? I hate you. God, I don't want to see you. I'm so yeah. jealous of him. But and yeah. it's basically um He's captured a cader when competition with him for writers, and it's captured a cadre of writers that are the next big thing. Um, he, he published the collection of short stories. Nearly all the nearly all the men in Lagos are mad. Um, he published a friend of mm-hmm. ours, uh, which is a beautiful people's playlist, which is basically each story is the, mm-hmm. each story is themed to a to an A and song from our generation from the 90s and 90s, and it's so mm-hmm. well done. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so it's it's the kind of work that he's doing. So Masobe is putting out a lot of great stuff. I, I like um, each, each time I read anything that Writers Project Ghana puts out. There's always a short mm-hmm. story that I'm really
0: mm-hmm.
1: excited by. At least in in Ghana, then of course um, by by the time you go to Liberia, Sierra Leone, so we are always looking for that voice, um, especially for coastal for coastal West Africa. We are. I personally, am looking for that interface. Between 600 years of European contact and our people. You know, so I'm, I'm, I'm looking for people who recognize that so much was damaged and changed. Just to look at people who are formed by that, because that's how my people were formed. Um, the, the Benin or, or, or the Edo, when you read about the um, Benin expedition, that's the Benin Massacre of 1897, the picture in your head from watching films about what happened in Zululand is. People in spears fighting people with rifles at rocks drift. But the Benin was rifle against rifle. The Benins have been armed by the Portuguese since the 1500s. They became a slave trading empire. Although they now stopped the slave trade really early before that, sub-Saharan kingdoms, because they found that it was decimating farming communities. And uh, what turned the scale? Benin had cannon. The Shekri's had cannon. I think even the Ashanti had cannon for the British. Both sides were armed. But what the British had was the water-cooled machine gun. Mm-hmm. Turned the tide. But most of the stories simplify those complications. You know, the complications of how the Yoruba Civil Wars from the 1780s to the 18... From the 1790s to the 1860s, basically fed the last cohort of slaves to so the West Indies. Or what happened with, uh, in Ghana, in the wars that fed the last... And how the most successful kingdoms, their gods, they didn't travel... So you so you look at you look at the world you have the orishas you have the gods you have Ahmad Yohan, everything but the gods of the slavers the people who succeeded their gods didn't travel their gods stayed back in in, in West Africa there's so much you can do with those stories and I like people who recognise those opportunities who recognise the complicatedness of dealing with the diaspora dealing with the resentments and the pain and also for like in Nigeria you can actually go back and know who the slave trading families were the records were never lost mm-hmm. you know them. they eventually mm-hmm. settled into oil but you kind of know them mm-hmm. and we had another trauma in west africa in nigeria specifically because the war kind of was a breaking transmission that kind of destroyed what happened before 1970 so for us that is kind of lost. Those old stories are lost because most of them lost everything in the war. Because a lot of right. them were from the southeast, from Lagos and the coast. Yeah. But it's those kind of stories that kind of things that I've always been interested in. So we're really interested in stories from across the continent, but specifically across our part of it. And we're also trying to get into translation into francophone, lusophone, mm. you know, other, other types of storytelling. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. Awesome. So you kind of answered my why the where question about, you know, how you came to be living and working and playing where you currently are. But tell us a little bit more about your Lagos. You know, Lagos is a vast town. So tell us about your why the where in Lagos.
1: Oh yeah, so I live on the mainland, quite close to the airport. The, okay. My entire family, at least those who move to Lagos, they live on the island. My mom's younger sisters, my cousins, they live close to the business district. Um, so when I was moving, I decided that I would live as far away from them as possible. <laughs> <laughs> I love them, but they are too much. And I said I would yeah. stay close to the mainland. And I think what, one of the reasons was I just wanted to be close to the airport and I wanted to be close to the bus park. So anytime I wanted to go back home to worry or be named, it wouldn't be yeah. hard. Uh, but the tragedy yeah. is now is that my house is now the halfway house for the entire family. So anybody who is... Of course, so, everyone traveling. We stopped there. Everybody's yeah. traveling with it. The, they'll be like, hey, yo, I said, what? says my flight is 5 p.m. Can I come and crash in your house? I'm like, what the... So yeah, so exactly. So I'm I'm back to be first son. So yes. yes. Traveling, he comes, he's coming back, it comes. So so yeah. yeah, so I live on the mainland. Luckily, I was able to get an office close to my house. Um, uh-huh. that is what Lagos is, is really about. It's about building your own bubble where you can be protected, yeah. and you can protect those that those that you care for. Um, yeah. um, that is my my Lagos. It's one of I'm still a nerd at heart. Uh, you can see from where I can be effusive about really quirky stuff. And so I the I'm the person who will say, oh, there's a book there's a book launch happening or there's a book event happening. And I'm the person, two minutes to say, hey, are we still going for this thing, which is code for, can I stay home? You know, so. <laughs> so, so that's my latest. But, but when I'm dragged out, it's always fun to be around other creatives and of course to be around my old doctor classmates, those of them who still remain, or again, halfway house, when they travel down from the States or from the UK or from Jamaica or from Bahamas, wherever they're practicing medicine, everybody drops by a Rosa's house. So I've, I've yes. become like a landlord of Lagos in, in a way. It's um, okay. It's the last, um, since 2013, when when, when, when I moved here. I, I was here much earlier. I practiced medicine here much earlier in 2003, but in the mm-hmm. last decade, it's been... Um, it's been fun. It's it's heartbreaking to have to leave Wari and Benin mm, because mm-hmm, of mm-hmm. economic Nigeria is becoming a single city state, a single city federation yeah. because everything is now in Lagos yeah. and the other capitals of commerce are shrinking while everybody's moving. So but I guess that's that's survival of, 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 of the fittest city. But we still pretend to be worry boys. You know, it, every basically they tell you that Nigerian comedy is worry. So if you see Nigerian comedy, uh if you see Nigerian stand-up, Nigerian stand-up is worry. The accents, the jokes, the patterns, the cadence, that's where I'm from. That's why I tell a group. So like now I've I've been code switching throughout this entire interview so your listeners can understand the English that I'm speaking. Because if I change it, I'm going to at all, which I just did. So because if I yeah. change it, nobody will hear a thing that I say. Yeah. So that's it.
0: Right, right, right. So this is, that's, that's a good transition into my glocal speak question. So we want to hear what you hear. So it's a word, a phrase, or a saying that is a meaningful part of your glocal experience and, and, and how our local experience and how you've come to value it as a glocal speak. So what are some phrases or words that, that ring in your ears?
1: They're not Okay.
0: Translation.
1: <laughs> uh, which means that, which means that you people then do not, Eat frozen water and claim that they've eaten a full meal. Okay. Okay. Another one is this one is a bit risky. Now where shot my hand reach now in the angi pants. Um, <laughs> which I guess you understand. <laughs> because I think our pigeon is close enough for you to get that. Do I need okay? Let me explain yeah. it to the local audience. Y- is y-
0: yes, exactly. <laughs>
1: um, um, the height, <laughs> the height of each of a, the height of a man limits where how high you can hang his underpants, which means in pigeon English, not do pass yourself or don't do more than your capacity. You can only do your best and your best is what you can only do. And your best is only what you you can do. Yeah. So it's, it's, um, yeah, it's, it's, I, I can't think of any, it's just.
0: Yeah. But no, those are great. Yeah. Those are, yeah. I'm sure that often heard and it's a definite exactly. part of your everyday life. Nice. Okay. So you were, you started writing, you, you had your first experience, and then you had a novel that had some critical acclaim. So yeah. tell us about that first writing experience, your process of, of putting together Fine Boys.
1: Okay, so Fine Boys was the second experience. So mm-hmm. I, I found out that, so uh, once once I finished with To St. Patrick, Popular Hibiscus was still nagging at my mind, and mm-hmm. and I wanted to write, um, I didn't think of it this way at that time, but what are writers if not both? Bullshitters. So this is the legend that has been created, that I've created mm. around it. And I think it makes sense. So I, I always, I was, popular because like touched me in a way that I knew that I would be working on a spiritual sequel to it, which is basically mm. not the same characters, not but the same archetype, the same people 10 years on. So Fine Boys was about that generation of people and they are in university. Uh, now, Fine Boys was the name that Nigeria had this problem with university gangs. They were called secret cults or confraternities. They were they became very violent. I think even now one, one of them has become a criminal organization in Europe called called the Black Axe. Arrived there on the back mm. of the Indian immigrants to Italy. And I hear that they've been doing deals with uh, La Cosa Nostra and the, the oh, Naples. Oh yeah, I've heard of that.
0: Mm, mm, so mm-hmm.
1: the Black Axe was one of the confraternities in Nigeria, and most of them were all sea themed. They were all um, sea based. So I always I wanted to tell a story about my experiences in school in and around them, but also larger about just the experience of of our people. So, and I wrote Fine Boys. For a long time, I would deny that it wasn't autobiographical, but yeah, it's been a decade. It is semi-autobiographical. A friend of mine was stabbed to death and died in my arms. He wasn't stabbed in front of me, but he he died in my arms and literally, um, not figuratively. And so this story was, it was a novel to him and his memory and how silly the old violence was and it was also speaking to the idea that associations and unions they tend to work for the first generation of founders and eventually they mm. lose their power over time so for example the first fraternity the first confraternity pirates was founded by non-conformists and um, one of their first leaders was captain blood who is Inca, and there were people like that they founded it in the late 50s in 1958 and so by the 1970s, it was, there was, it was already becoming decayed, because the life, the life, half-life of a university career is two years. So things happen much quicker on like the general pub, public. And it's like a snapshot of how quickly life can change. So by 1970, in the 1970s, this it, part broke out, and they called themselves the Buccaneers. In Benin, another part broke out, faction and they called themselves the Black Axe. In the University of Port a faction broke and They called themselves the uh, Vikings. And that was how it kind of, dis- and that's how it all broke out. So the Mafites named after the Blackstone. And then, of course, then the Mafia, uh, which was based on Godfather. Then there, were, um, there was even one very weird one. I think it was the KKK, um, that only mixed race guys could join. Yeah, you heard that right. Then there was the Jezebels, which was a sorority that formed in response to the violence. To protect girls and there was the black braziers or the black bras on other sororities. So by the 90s, this thing was all and it's to conform was to join the confraternity. So the non-conformists were those of us who now refused the confraternities. We were the nerds and the geeks and you see the classic, you see an an American university archetype or schools, you see the college, you see the jocks, you see the people, you see the science club, we were the nerds, the kind of weird people who never joined anything and were just kind of just hanging out. And which means that we would have been the ones to have formed the confraternity in the 50s. And you you, you Mm -hmm. see that at times even with national associations, like the Nigerian Association of Nigerian Writers, or you see it with uh, Anna, or you see it with the Ghanaian Writers Association, where after a while, the juice is lost because administrative people eventually run and take over the association. But the, the brilliant people who would have founded it have no time for it because writers write right. in many yeah. situations. So that was one of the things I wanted. Those are some of the themes that I engaged with. Um, the, the the writing of it was, was pretty straightforward. It's what I have I, done with both books, and I think it works for, for me. A character Bible where I just have my characters and I start writing quirks and characteristics, and I put that away and forget it. Then a plot outline where I know the ending. I always have to know the yeah. ending. Yeah. I do not know the journey there, but I, I know the ending. Yeah. Then I start drafting. So I, then I now write the details outline for the for the first three chapters. I write chapter one and two, then stop. Then go and revise the outline for chapter two. Chap, no, I revise the outline for chapter three, now that I've written one and two. Then I write four and five. Then I go, I write those three and four. Then I revise the outline for chapter five. And I write five, six, and seven, then I write five. And so I just, it's kind of like a frog hopping process out till I get to, to the ending. But roughly, I know that it's going to be a 20 chapter book, but it eventually becomes 25 chapters. I know it's going to be a 16 chapter book, eventually becomes 17 or 18, or becomes 14 chapters. So for the, for for both books and even for my short stories, it's always about bullet points. Bullet points, so I've written it in my head, then the journey of actually discovering the writing. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, but mm-hmm. the thing about writing is. This, The work is not in writing, the work is in the editing, because it can be very difficult deleting work based on the uh, advice of an editor. It can be very difficult redrafting. And I've never suffered redrafting. I've never gone through overhauling a story. Apart from, I think for Fine Boys, I had to merge several characters, because seeing as it was a pastiche of real life, in real life, you have multiple people who are best friends over your life. But in fiction, no, you will have one. So it was basically merging the character was best friend in primary school, best friend in secondary school, best friend in university, and best friend that, that got killed. It was merging, of course, people are a bit more promiscuous in real life, Imagine the girlfriend in year one, with the girlfriend in year two, and the girlfriend in year three, so they become one character. <laughs> so, 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 yeah, so, 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 so that was what, so it was basically in terms of from writing from real life into creating fiction. It was things like that. There was something that Chimamanda read an early draft and gave me notes and said that mm-hmm. the, as the novel went on, it became better, it was smoother, but that the early parts were a bit clunky and she didn't get it and I need to turn smoothing them, that she felt that the later parts were based on real life and the early parts was based on fiction. And I thought actually it was the other way around that I tried to keep close to what really happened with the clunky bits, because real life doesn't follow a plot. And the yeah. part where I was making shit up, when I was making it up, that's when it actually really flowed. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, exactly.
0: Okay. Yeah. Very interesting. Wow. So interesting. Okay. So then you got into publishing. So so then, where does narrative landscapes come into the picture, and how oh, yeah. how did you understand oh. yourself as a publisher? So what 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 when when did that
1: table turn? Okay, so, so I, I, I left medicine not for writing. That was an oversimplification. So my, my, my dad got ill in 2010, and okay. I, and I um, had to go and run the bank, the family oh, business. Okay. Uh, and uh, so I became the MD of a mortgage bank uh, for a few years. Then my dad got better in 2012, 2013. Then, as first sons and fathers are want to do, we had a big argument, and I walked away. And um, so <laughs> I was about to go back to medicine. I was about to go and dust up the medical books. When uh, my publisher, by then I was already published, my, both novels were out. So Mukta Bakari, uh-huh. who discovered me, finally said, Egusa, So you have some, I need somebody to help me run Kachifu. Can you help me run it? And I said, Oh, sure. That, that's a lovely experiment. Let's see. So I came, I ran the publisher, I ran the people who published me, I ran my publisher. Okay. I ran it up until 2016. Then I kind of outgrew it. Mm-hmm. And I so me and one of my editors at the time, uh, Jogu, who, who you would have met. Mm-hmm. So she mm-hmm. now came to me with this idea that she wanted to set up a publishing services company where we would, we had no money at all. I was still fighting with my dad, and I didn't want to go to him for money. So we had so we had about equivalent to a thousand bucks that we had to cobble from everywhere. And We started this company where we would offer the skills that we had learned, you know, editing, design, print, project management, logistics to. Other publishers to individual writers to vanity writers and all that jazz, and that's how Native Landscape Press started as a publishing services company. But I told oh, her wow. at the time in twenty sixteen that eventually we were going to be traditional publishers. She wasn't that keen. I said, but eventually we will have to do it. So, yeah. so we we built up a war chest over the years. Then in twenty eighteen, we eventually published our first traditionally published books, which was when we acquired the rights for all of Chimamanda's books. Okay. Um, yeah, so so Gonda so came and joined us as our first author, although we had published other authors before them, but they paid for us. They were self published, sure. even though sure. they used our imprint. Then we now, so from there, that's so our real journey to traditional publishing started in 2018. We opened our submissions desk and we started um, doing our own work, you know, um, nice. both acquiring regional rights uh-huh. and acquiring um, and also discovering authors on our own. Yeah, but the mm-hmm. first. The first book that we've published completely uh, on on our own from um, I I don't know if the mirror image will show, but I I will send you a yes. picture. So so this is truth is the flightless bird. Yes. But yeah, that's how it started. That's how we, uh, we 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 were able to do this journey, and that's how. So night Landscape Press was always eventually the ending of our journey was always going to be owning a printing press. That's okay. what we are going to, as because like I said, it was always about owning production, instead of having to print in South Asia, we need to be able to produce here. It's long; it's taking longer than we expect, but it has always been a dream to own a mass, not a small corner-corner press, but something really massive that can do massive work and scale, you know, by bringing prices down, yeah.
0: So in the building you're in, there's a press
1: there. Yes, exactly. In the name, there's a person. Yes, exactly. Although people, people now, see, people now think they are printers. We have to say no. We are not printers. We work with printers because yes. printers they are like they are like tailors. The day yes. they see your clothes to be ready, their telephone will be off that day. You cannot contact <laughs> them. So we normally tell you that no, two weeks is lying. It's going to be three and a half weeks. You know, yeah, so, so exactly. We can be between our clients and and printers, yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, we met on a panel that your partner was on about the future of books and publishing in Africa and and where that's going. And listeners, again, this is, I think, my second interview with someone from the Peja Festival. So that's where we met in here in Ghana. And so just kind of expanding on that concept, you know, and thinking about where we're going with actual paper, because I am actually a believer that our education system needs paper, you know, to some extent. I think that children need libraries to some extent. I mean, particularly given that we're in this gap space where we haven't solved for infrastructure totally and we have masses that don't have access to this future technology. So I'm all for future technology, but I think that there is a place that remains for the the written word on a, on a paper. So with that in mind and thinking about, you know, where... Where and how vast you can go, and what where other you know you're you're in the book publishing, but are textbooks something you're thinking about? Like how 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 do you think about the future of the landscape press?
1: Yes, we got our first we released our first textbooks this year, mm-hmm. in but, but but they came too late, so we're going to roll them out by over the next few months against next year's session because textbooks are seasonal. You aim for September. Yes. And and so, yeah, but we went with uh, civics and social studies because mm. our, our strategy was always to go with, with the... I can't compete with Macmillan or books like that for maths and science, but I, I know I can write a very good social studies books because I know my politics and I know the things sure. I want to say and I know I can yeah. domesticate it here. So we went with that. Uh, we're thinking of French, a French textbook next because uh, our big country syndrome, we're surrounded by francophone, and we are really bad at French. It's been in our, it's so been in our policy. I and mean, just strive towards being to, to be bilingual in the European languages. But God, we yeah. went through it as children. I don't know if I suffered it. So it was just uh, Jumapel, comment to Tapel too. Jumapel. <laughs> that is where we led to the nightlife. There was only... Uh, yeah, exactly. That was all. So we're working on a French textbook. So yeah, we've Paper and the capacity for electronic publishing as a way to try and do accessible publishing. There's this concept of accessible publishing now, which is mostly for Mm -hmm. slight impaired and reading impaired, reading disabled Mm -hmm. individuals. But even us, we are Mm -hmm. thinking that, like Anwoli would have said on the panel, I think that was our company's position at the panel was that you needed to, yeah, you could dream and get all that done. But the people that you needed to read the books did not have the devices.
0: Yeah. Exactly.
1: that you are talking about. They don't have the device. And the devices need power. So while electronic reading and the rest will work in a system, books still need to be in the hands of kids. And, yeah. and while we can praise the donating of secondhand books from, the, um, from overseas, we also still need to develop the capacity to produce our stories here. No matter how yes. cheaply, no matter if it's on paper, that's mm-hmm. like tissue paper, just produce it and make it as sure. cheap as possible, make it as discardable as possible. The child would definitely not look at that book past the age, past two or three years. Recycle mm-hmm. the paper, goes into the system, and is produced. I've always believed that while we, without prejudice to those who are working in the e-book field or in aud- and audio books and all, the, all those spaces, I'm a fan of audio books myself because I can only do mm-hmm. so many things at a yeah. time. I sincerely and strongly believe that production of the printed book, of the book itself, as cheaply as possible, as widely distributed as possible is still the answer. I believe that you don't need to force a child to read. Just have books in the house. One day will be bored enough to pick one up. Yes, it's true. It's true. Although now I'm finding it difficult to explain that, my uh, optimism, because I have twins, and there's a book <laughs> the tablet, the tablet Every time, but I think my I
0: the, know. The
1: wife has started shutting down the tablet. So they normally sit down twiddling their thumbs and we're like, look at, look at that shelf. It is full. Pick one, you know?
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's the way. That's the way. So speaking of um, thinking about things and mindset, let's talk about a mindset hack. So what is your favorite or an innovative mindset hack? So this is one that you can imagine, one that you know of, or one that you practice?
1: Oh, no, for me, it's um, one and em- empathy, um, mm. but, but, mm-hmm. but in practice, I, I put myself in the person's shoes. Yes. So, if, um, so if somebody, um, and that's really important. So if somebody gives me a job to do and I've been too lazy, I imagine their disappointment when I fail and that kind of helps me um, get, get I, I, I think that's it for me. I, I imagine how I look to others. So that, that, that can have a paralyzing effect of being too aware of what people think of you. And I think that's also my, mm. my weakness, but I'm really, really aware. And yeah. it, um, it also saves me in writing. So, for example, I, I develop a massive inferiority complex about my writing, not enough to paralyze it, but enough to be ashamed of it, of it if it's bad. Then I go back and I try to mm. make it better. I try to make to it better. I try to make it better. So, so for me, it's always about, uh, it's, it's related to seeing how people see me, putting myself in their shoes. Will I disappoint them? Mm-hmm. Okay, they're going to mess this mm-hmm. up now. Or that person will laugh at you, and that now tries to make me yeah. So I th- I think that that's my that's my hack for changing my mindset about anything empathy and projection. I think the other person's Awareness, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah those, are, those are good good ones. Yeah, that's a definite way to approach life in a. In a humanistic it's very way, let's put it that way. <laughs> it's <is> very unhealthy. <laughs> but, <laughs> I mean, yeah, yeah. The empathy piece is the real piece that I think is yeah. what is carrying you through is because you've, you have a consciousness about the other. And I think that that's, that is something that, like I said, humans, we need to see each other, like see each other in a much yeah. broader way.
1: Because I, I, I envy, those, envy those who, who don't G-A-F. They're so lucky. right? They're not, they're not, they're, <laughs> they just they're, go they're, for whatever, whatever. yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, there's a place for all of us, obviously, right. <laughs> Let's let's turn to the you that is not the, the publisher or the writer, you know, in your in your spare time. How do you, I, I'm sure you read a lot, so I'm not sure, I'm sure you probably may not read too much, but I like to ask the question, when you're not in this business self, are you a reader, a watcher, or are you a listener? And what are some of your favorite, probably more so watches or listens, but if reading, there's some, <laughs> so, some no, new tips you can add, that would be great.
1: Reading doesn't happen because of publishing. Yeah, there's, there's okay. no time. It's it's very painful. Yeah. Um I, I, I can't stand sure. the I'm, I'm I'm sick of it. So most times I, I've initially I used to steal audiobooks from um from a from those sites where we used to get free films. I would go instead of getting the films, I would go, I'll go for the oh, audiobooks.
0: Okay.
1: Yeah, but okay, I think the okay, Americans okay. finally destroyed the last of them pirate day about a day ago. <laughs> <laughs> so you know that I've mean? all criminals. So I do. <laughs> and then then the justification was that you can't even they will not take Naira. You can't even buy them if you're in Africa. But they said it's a lie, you can pay for them now. It is not true anymore. Oh, okay. So, so I have an Audible account and I and and I I, I listen to audiobooks. Audio, audio, audio yeah, so I listen to audiobooks a lot. And I've always been a video game nerd, so I still play. That's to relax, to decompress. Okay. Then I've always then I then I then I watch films. Um I've 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 always been one for fantasy. That has always been my my first love. Very well told fantasy and speculative fiction. And that's what that is what I still especially if mainstream stories cross over, or if speculative fiction crosses over into uh-huh. mainstream, either in audiobook format uh-huh. or on a and Netflix as Amazon Prime, Netflix, Disney yeah. Plus, with the way the Star Wars stories have been retold and be of course there's there's like a lot there's lots of bad work but there's some good work going on there there's this new andor 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 yes andor andor about Cassian Andor this character that was created for um, Rogue One this uh, Star Wars prequel and yeah this is the the okay. a t- a 13 episode arc first season, that is the best Star Wars story ever told it is what everybody had hoped that the prequels would become
0: that's the that's Disney plus right
1: Disney plus yeah yeah. Mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. I, I'm, I'm, I'm able to get um, Disney Plus. In, yeah, in Lagos because of thank God for VPN. But yeah. So, so mm-hmm. it's so it's those kind of things that, that I watch. Yeah. Um. So that's what I mostly watch when I want to take my eyes off the printed page and I want to become a passive enjoyer mm-hmm. because with literature, mm-hmm. literature demands as much from its consumer as it does from its writer, from from its creator. That's what. Yeah. That's what poetry, yeah. really printed book does. And there's a joke I always crack to my friends who know this. I'm dyslexic when it comes to poetry. I can't see it on, <laughs> on the page. But if it's read to me, I get it. But I've never, I've never been able to understand. So why did the line break here? They'll say no, because it's I say pent. I don't I can't count it. I can't dance. Maybe that's why mm. right. I don't get really much. So so for me, it's always about um and I think that, that's also also I've also informed my writing style, where it's very evocative of. Of storytelling, so I I try to write mm-hmm. where I speak. I try to learn when to put a comma, when to play with a quick cadence of words and slow it down and bring you back, you know, without using things mm-hmm. like "however." Thereafter, I hate those words, mm-hmm. but just using the language mm-hmm. itself to do that—it's uh, always been yeah um, a, a very important thing for me. Yeah, so for me, it's it's passive entertainment when I'm relaxing. Audio books, sure, yeah. Film. The, the only active entertainment I do is. Playing FIFA, which my wife hates, yeah, because it doesn't <laughs> let I can be, a, and, and since the pandemic, I've not had any play partner, somebody that would come and visit. Where would I think most of oh, them have yeah. gone,
0: Yeah,
1: all the right people yeah. are playing, they are, they are too young, so all the 40 something year old FIFA players they have all traveled overseas. <laughs> no, not <laughs>
0: That's funny, um, and fun and fun. Oh, that's great. so we'll we'll have some of that in our show notes and this has been so great. I love this conversation. I would love to continue, and I know, but I know you have home to get to and and um and we I'd love to continue some other time actually just talking more about writing and authors and all those things. So be on the lookout for a call from me about that. So before we sign off, can you share any final words or thoughts with our audience today?
1: Yeah, just Tell your stories. It's a lot easier than mm. we make it seem. We, we make it hard so you don't come and steal our jobs. Um, just <laughs> tell, tell the story. You are, you are children of this world. The greatest invention that humanity ever made was not the wheel. It wasn't the concept of zero. It was the sentence. Correlation. It was causation. Mm. Subject, verb, mm. object. That is the greatest tool we have, the tool of language and the sentence And with that, you can do so much more. Just you can do anything you want to do with with it. Play with it and find that space and luxuriate, glorify it. It's a beautiful space to be.
0: Nice, nice. That is poetic, quite honestly. uh, Yeah, exactly. Thank you. Poetry. Spoken words. That's what they're yeah. meant to be. Thank you yeah. so much. Thank you so much. So folks, this has been another episode of the podcast. You can catch us Tuesdays with new episodes at GlobalCitizensPod.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to like, share, write a review. It helps people find great content online. And until next time, bye for now.